Turn to Genesis chapter 3. We've been slowly chipping away at some major themes in uh, these opening three chapters of the Bible. In this 10-part series, Solid Foundations for a Crumbling Culture, and we're at part 9. I we have to put a break on it for two weeks. I was hoping that we could finish up before we go away, but we'll finish up uh, when I return in February. Uh, one of the classes that I'm taking, uh, the first class I'm taking in Orlando is preaching Old Testament narrative. So I have a feeling that after we finish with Genesis 1 through 3, we'll be in an Old Testament narrative. So in the evening, um, that's, that's where we're headed. We'll finish up Acts in the morning, um, right around Easter time, and then I think we'll be in Nehemiah. Don't hold me to that, but that's where I think we're going to be headed in the evening services after we finish this series. Uh, for now, though, Genesis 3, uh, beginning in verse 1, the first seven verses. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So... When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. As far the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing. Now to the preaching of it. It's official. Truth is dead. Facts are passe. This according to the Washington Post back in 2016, not too long ago. uh, They were reporting on the decision of Oxford Dictionaries to select for their International Word of the Year post-truth. That was their word of the year, post-truth, in 2016. The official definition of post-truth is this, quote, relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion or personal belief. So when the term post-truth is used, it's not saying that they're uh, uh, truth is, is gone, it's saying that truth isn't really matter. It's not that truth isn't there anymore, or, or this, it's not so much like after truth, it's after truth had any significance. That's the idea. Post-truth, we live in a world uh, that relates to note circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion or personal belief. Uh, and that definitely sounds like today. Uh, but it also predates 2016 and our modern world of um, post-truth, post-everything else, post-modernity, all of that. In fact, I thought that that definition 
served as a fairly um, accurate summary of the opening verses of Genesis chapter 3. Let me read it one more time, the definition, and then let's consider what happens in Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Post-truth, relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotional or personal belief. Well, in Genesis 3, the objective fact, which was you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that objective fact becomes less influential in shaping public opinion, namely that of Adam and Eve, than an appeal by the serpent to Eve's emotion and playing on her own personal beliefs. And the serpent makes this appeal in the form of a question. Did God really say? Did God actually say? It's the first question mark in the Bible. And it's fitting that the slithering serpent be the first one to form that sly punctuation mark. It's an insidious question. Derek Kidner, the great Old Testament scholar in glory now, said the question is disturbing and flattering. And it's flattering because it smuggles in the assumption that God's word is subject to our judgment. You see, that's patently false, of course, but it's a new concept to Eve and one she's willing to explore. Up to this point, the thought had never occurred to her or to Adam uh, that they could maybe question God. uh, That perhaps his truth wasn't the only truth out there. And so the serpent thereby introduces Two disastrous lies to Eve in this one seemingly innocent question. We're going to see what those are in a moment. But what I want us to recognize before we dive in, that what Eve is dealing with here, what she's grappling with here, is, is something that is alive and well today. And we're going to get to that in, in a few moments. But just to prime the pump, this idea of, your truth, right? My truth versus your truth. Um, that, that, that idea first came in the garden. And it was the idea of God's truth versus Eve's truth. Whose wins out. We live in this, this world of live your truth. That's what life is all about. And it starts here. And it starts with the serpent introducing two lives. And that, it, two lies. And this one question, did God really say... He is planting two lies in her heart and mind. The first is, maybe God isn't that good after all. That's the first lie, but the first thought for her to kind of maul over. Maybe God isn't that good after all. The implication is that what God's instructed Adam and Eve is very restrictive, cruel even, uh, regarding what trees they could eat. Now he asked, the servant asked, did God really say, you see this there in our passage, did God really say... At the end of verse 1, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden. Well, the serpent emphasizes this qualifier, any, uh, you know, as though he's saying, this God that made you, Eve, did he really prohibit your enjoyment of any tree in this beautiful and this luscious garden? Well, God did not say that, of course. In fact, he said the exact opposite. Look at chapter 2 and verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat. What? 
of every tree of the garden. That's the emphasis. When God gives the command, the emphasis is every tree you can have, with one exception. And the devil comes in and he says, you know, it's like God's not letting you do anything. And so he plants this idea. He introduces this idea of divine stinginess. And Eve is duped by it. She replies, seemingly to correct the serpent, well, no, 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 no. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But you see, she's already started to buy into the lie because she doesn't really defend God here. She, it seems like she does at the beginning. There in verse 2, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But then notice what she says in verse 3. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. You're not going to find that command anywhere in chapter 2. God never said that they couldn't touch the tree. He only said you couldn't eat of the tree. She magnifies uh, the strictness of God. Uh, She started to flesh out this idea that maybe God isn't good after all, justifying in her mind that he's gone overboard in his law for life in Eden. So the serpent's first lie in this question, did God really say, is that God is not good? But then the second lie that he plants is not only is, not, is God not good, but maybe God's not God at all. Maybe God's not God at all. That is to say, the serpent gets Eve to buy into this idea that whether God's prohibition is cruel or not, God doesn't actually have the ultimate say in the situation. Eve is able to make her own law. She is the master of her fate. She's the captain of her soul. God's position of authority, it's not exclusive to him. You have authority too. You have autonomy too, Eve. It's, it, this, this authority that God has, it's something that Eve herself could be elevated to. He says, you're, you're not going to die. God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like him. You will be like God. Now look at verse 6. This is fascinating. So she's, she's just been told that maybe God isn't God at all. Maybe she can be God. And then verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, dot, 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 dot. She goes on and eats, right? She's drawn in by the allure to be made like God, and yet we find in that verse she's already acting like God. She's not even waiting to eat the fruit to start acting like God. Where do we see that? It's, it's, it's a clever way in which uh, the author narrates this scene. Look again at the beginning of verse 6. The woman saw that the tree was good. Does it sound familiar? In Genesis 1, we were told repeatedly this refrain that the maker, the creator of all, would survey. He would see something and then he would declare, it is good. She's taking the place of God here. The woman becomes the surveyor and the determiner of what is good and what is not good. The creature is acting like the creator. She's writing her own law. She says, I see that this tree is good for me, so I'm going to go for it because I'm making the determination. It doesn't matter what God says. I am writing my own law. She has bought into the lie that God is not God after all. In fact, she is. And these twin lies are, are the bedrock of the devil's initial temptation. God is not good. And actually, he's not God at all. Or at least he's not the only God. You could be God too. 
And this is what the devil has done from the beginning. This is the ancient lie. That's the, uh, um, or the, the lies that are, are embedded within that ancient question. He's done it from the beginning, and he continues to do it ever since. Jesus said that the devil does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. John eight forty four. Revelation twelve nine calls him the deceiver of the world. So, since Satan is still prowling about today, uh, active as our adversary, we should not be surprised to learn that that ancient question made up of those two lies is still being prompted in the hearts of God's image bearers today. And in fact, I would submit to you that any time we sin, it's because we are acting upon one of these two lies. We sin because, or when I say we sin, what I mean is when we violate God's clear command, we do that because we have uh, convinced ourselves, one, God isn't good, and I, I have a better way forward, and God actually isn't God at all. I'm allowed to choose this better path, right? So not only do we believe we have a better vision for our life, we convince ourselves we have the authority to act upon it. It's a delusion, elevating ourselves to the position of God. And that's how we find ourselves in a world in which your truth, my truth, makes total sense. Uh, this is how we get a world in which live your truth is a, is a slogan, a popular slogan for self-empowerment. And literally, while I was uh, typing that out in my notes in my study this week, listening to my Spotify, an ad came out that said, uh, came up that wanted me to pay for premium membership so that I could, quote, stay true to you. What? Apparently, if I'm hindered by ads every few minutes, those 30-second ads on Spotify, and, and if I can't listen to my music on my phone or in my car or wherever I, I want, whenever I want, well, then I'm not living my most authentic self, my most authentic life. I must remove the shackles, the barriers, the strictures, and be true to me and pay $9.99 a month, right? This is the slogans that we hear all over. The serpent is asking that same ancient question today, planting the same seeds of doubt, of, uh, of doubt and of distrust in God, proposing that he is not good. And in fact, maybe he's not God at all. And the, and the serpent is proposing those questions through all sorts of voices, through Spotify ads, through the major themes uh, in um, every Disney movie that's out there, through the influence of cultural figures like Oprah Winfrey in her Lifetime Achievement Award uh, that she received in 2018 from the Golden Globes. This is what she said in her acceptance speech. Quote, what I know for sure is that speaking your truth is the most powerful tool we all have. Speaking your truth. Ross Douthat, he's a columnist for the New York Times, said that this is the religious message with the most currency in American culture. Living your truth, speaking your truth. An example of its popularity is the story of Elizabeth Gilbert. Maybe some of you are familiar with that name. I'm not sure. She, uh, at one point, she hated her life, uh, Elizabeth Gilbert, the life that she was living. She wanted to be happy, happy, but happiness eluded her. 
And she was at the end of her rope, and she finds herself uh, curled up on her bathroom floor at 3 a.m. doing something that she had hardly ever done in her entire life, and that was pray. She found herself praying, and she addressed this God that she didn't normally talk to with, with terms from the Bible, God, Lord. She used uh, masculine pronouns and, and the like, and her prayer was essentially just a litany of woes. God, I don't want to be married anymore. God, I don't want to live in this house anymore. God, I don't want to have this baby, and she just kind of repeated these over and over, and at long last, someone spoke back, and she recounts it was not um, an Old Testament Hollywood Charlton Heston voice, nor was it a voice telling me to build a baseball field. Rather, listen to what she says, it was merely my own voice speaking from within my own self. There it is. You see, God is not God. Elizabeth Gilbert is God. She prays to God, and she answers and says, that must be God now speaking. And her divine inner voice told her to divorce her husband, sell her home, abandon the idea of having children, and go have the adventures that she's been wanting for for years. And she did. She traveled the world. She slept around, and then she turned her escapades into a book. Uh, Maybe you've read it, or maybe you've seen the major motion picture adaptation starring Julia Roberts. It's called Eat, Pray, Love. Eat, Pray, Love remained on the New York Times bestseller list for 187 weeks. 187 weeks. That's over three years as a bestseller. A book doesn't stay a bestseller that long unless it resonates with the general public. It doesn't become a Hollywood film unless executives know that we are going to make lots of money off of this. Off of a story about a woman who prays to God and hears her own voice and she follows that voice and she finds good food, good love, and happiness. The reason that this was so successful is because it was entirely based on the serpent's lie that captured the human heart the whole way back in Genesis 3. Ever since that moment, which we read in Genesis 3, 1 through 7, we are prone to follow this lie, to think this is how we will have happiness. Not by submitting to God's word, not submitting to God's truth, but by living out my truth. If it can capture Eve, and if it can capture millions of people since, who is to say... It won't capture you or me. James chapter 4 and verse 7 instructs us to resist the devil. And one of the most important ways we can do that is by silencing the insidious questions that he poses us and stamping out that lie that he tries to feed us. And so, to equip us in that, uh, towards that end, I want to just leave you with two things This evening to remember these two facts about the nature and the character of God when you're tempted to follow in the path of Eve and live out your truth as opposed to God's truth, which, you know, it goes without maybe it doesn't go without saying because I'm about to say it. But uh, the whole idea of your truth, my truth, somebody else's truth is nonsensical. Truth is objective. There is one truth. Period. There is truth. Period. And so when I say, 
you know, tempted to follow your truth versus God's truth. There aren't actually two options. The option is, are you going to follow the truth or follow the lie? When we're tempted to do that, I want you to remember these two, two things about God and about his character. First is this. It's very simple. God is true. God is true. And by that, we actually mean two things. The first is that he doesn't lie. When we say God is true, we mean he doesn't lie. And the sheer number of biblical texts that we could turn to to prove this uh, would take up an entire sermon in its own right. So let me just highlight a few. You could write them down if you want look them up later. Isaiah 65, 16 calls the Lord the God of truth. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4 says, The rock, this rock, his way is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness, emet, that's the Hebrew word for truth, a God of truth, faithfulness, truth, and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Uh, the best Christians in their best moments look to God because they know in him is found truth, like the psalmist in Psalm 86, verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. And Titus chapter 1 and verse 2 says it most plainly, God never lies. God never lies. Uh, there's um, kind of a, a contrast between what Jesus said in John 8 about Satan, right? He's been lying since the beginning. Why? It's his nature. That's his character. It's what he does. It's who he is. God is the exact opposite. He never lies because his nature, his character is truth. He is truth. Only the words of God are completely untainted from falsehood or deceit. Think about this. Think about somebody who, that you know, that when you think of them, you know, a, a descriptor, an adjective that comes to mind is this person is honest. This person is, is truthful. Think about who that person is in your life. Somebody who, who when they say it, when they, when they tell you something, you believe it right away because of their character, because you know they're not a liar, because you know they're not dishonest. Who's that person? You have that person. Okay. Now I want you to know that, that that person, the most truthful or honest person that you know in life, has lied enough times to condemn their souls to hell a million times over. That's the nature of being a fallen human. Only God is completely untainted from falsehood or deceit. In all of his ways, in all of his works, in all of his words, God is truth. God is true. That means he doesn't lie. I said it, meant there's, it means two things. The second thing is that he doesn't make mistakes. Um, or to put it positively, God is always right. We all know people who are sincere and sometimes are sincerely wrong. That's not God. It's not just that he doesn't lie. He really means something, but he's wrong about it. No, he never lies and he never makes mistakes. God is not a sincerely wrong being. You know, we returned to Eve and the serpent, and he planted those two insidious thoughts in her mind in terms of what God was up to. The one was that God was lying to her about the reason for forbidding her to eat the tree. But the second was that God's reasons were not right, that they were in error. You know, you will surely not die. And, and for Eve to experience fulfillment and happiness, she needed to chart her own path forward. God's wrong on this point, the serpent's saying. But God is never wrong. He never makes mistakes. You know, Eve might have not liked it, but not eating the forbidden fruit 
was the right thing for her. God is true. God is right. God's truth is combined with his sovereignty. He knows the end from the beginning. And he's drawing all of life and all existence to a perfect conclusion. Because he never makes mistakes. And so this fact alone about the character of God, that he is true, that he never lies, and that he never makes mistakes, that should be enough to cause us to fall on our faces and worship him. And I believe it is enough to actually engender that sort of reverence for God, maybe even fear of God, but it won't necessarily engender faith in God. What do I mean by that? Well, just because God doesn't lie and just because he's never wrong, well, that doesn't mean that what he says is easy, right? We might think, well, what if what God says, which is true and right, is actually hard for me? What if it actually hurts me? What if it isn't the way I would want to do things? So where can I find the faith to fall before his truth and believe it and accept it and live it out? How can I do that? I mean, let's just be honest. The Bible is filled with a lot of difficult things, hard sayings, seemingly heavy burdens, uh, difficult commands that run counter to our desire to look out for number one and to fulfill all of our selfish and sinful lusts and desires. So what can we do? What can we do so that we can embrace this truthful God in faith, in love? We need to add to our understanding of God's character When we're tempted with that ancient question, did God really say, does God really know what he's talking about? Is he really good? Is he even God? When we're tempted to follow after that line of thinking, we need to add to our first foundational fact about the nature of God that he is true. This second fact, he is trustworthy. God is true and God is trustworthy. And do you want proof? Look to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the word of truth himself. Jesus is the logos, the the word of God, the, the truth of God made flesh. Jesus himself says, I'm the way, I'm I am the truth. I'm the life. Jesus is said in Revelation to have a name. The faithful and the true. That's Jesus. When you look to Jesus, we see that God's truth, the only truth, comes to us clothed in mercy and in love. We see truth sitting and eating with outcasts and sinners. That means he would sit and eat with you and me. We see truth healing the lame, restoring sight to the blind. We see truth condemned as being a liar. Isn't that the tragedy of tragedies? Why does he go to the cross? Because they said he was a a, a blasphemer. That he, he made himself to be God. He said he could do something that no man can do. That he would die and 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 raise up this temple. He's a liar. He says he's the king of the Jews. He's a liar. They killed truth. For being a liar. And he then went condemned as a liar. Bound to a cross. Was killed for sinners like you and me. Who would just as soon deny his truth and live out our own. 
But then he who is true God, of true God, he who is truth itself, stepped out of the grave three days later, and he secured our own resurrection. And so what I want you to see tonight, friends, is that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the one who is the truth, you come to see that the point of God's truth or the purpose of God's truth is always to serve your good and your eternal glory. You can trust God's truth when you look to Jesus. God is trustworthy and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus proves this. Will God's truth mean hardship for you? Yes, I think it will. Will It mean not getting what you want at times, most certainly. Will it mean doing things that you would prefer not to do? Yes, it will. But will it be worth it? Well, how could we ever ask a question like that when we see that it's only God's truth that can lead from death to life evermore? We trust God's word because even if it might forbid that we eat uh, from a tree that looks really delicious... Appealing to the eyes, right? Desiring to make one wise. We think that this would just, this would have it all. Isn't that what living our truth is? We have something in our sights that we think, if I have this, I will have it all. I will have what I need. And God says, no, you can't have that. And we say, why? And he says, because it's a tree of death, but I want it. He says, why would you want it? Because I'm forbidding it so you can instead eat from the tree of life. So even if it's hard, even if we we don't want to accept it, we see that the only reason God forbids things from us is to give us much greater things. He says, no, 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 don't eat of that tree. I have a better tree for you. And Christ went to the tree of death that we deserve to eat from and be condemned for. He went to that tree so that we would have the tree of life, which Revelation pictures for us in the new heavens and the new earth. And so, what we must cling to when we find ourselves in in a valley in life, in a low point, uh, when we find ourselves following God's word has led to trial and self-denial, maybe the loss of friends, the loss of colleagues, and, and when we're pleading with God, where is the life you promised? We must remember uh, with Thomas Watson, the Lord might delay a promise, but he never denies one. He might delay a promise, but he will not deny. He is true. He does not lie. He does not make mistakes. And therefore, he is trustworthy. Follow his truth, the truth. Everything else ends in chains of gloomy darkness, but the truth will set you free. And that truth is Jesus Christ. He sets us free from our sin, securing salvation for us. Opening up eternity to us, but in the short term, in the immediate, embracing the truth of God found in Jesus also sets us free from ourselves. You know, we're the worst wardens of our souls. We choose paths that are bad for us and hurt us. Decisions that we think will bring us happiness almost never do. They leave us empty. And if you want to commit to what Oprah wants you to commit to, living out your truth, this is the most powerful thing you have. If you, if you want to do that, you're going to find yourself lonely, depressed, and empty. Uh, Brett McCracken for the Gospel Coalition says, Your truth puts you on incredible, puts a self, incredible self justifying burden on the individual. If we are all self made projects whose destinies are wholly ours to discover and implement, life becomes a rat race of performative individuality. Your truth autonomy invariably leads to loneliness. 
Because it erroneously suggests that we can live unencumbered and uninfluenced by the various structures that surround us, like family, church, so forth. But it becomes impossible to form community when everybody is out there as their own island with no necessary reliance upon larger truths. Essentially, when we buy into the lie of the serpent and we think that God is not good and that maybe he's not even God at all, we can find ourselves to live out a pathetically lonely and futile existence. We are always trying to assert our way over everybody else's, and yet somehow we're never arriving at the happiness we thought a live-your-truth kind of life would give us. The truth of Christ, though, sets us free from the rat race. Sets us free from works righteousness. Sets us free from depression and from loneliness. Real life is found in God's truth, not yours. Real power is found in God's truth, not yours. Puritan Richard Baxter says, The truth of God is the ground of our faith. It is the stay of our souls and the rock of our confidence and comfort. It is the foundation of all of our hopes. And it is the life of our religion. So... Friends, resist the devil. Don't entertain his insidious question even for a moment. Put to death your sinful deeds and desires, which includes the impulse to live out your own truth. And rather, embrace Christ as the one who came to show you the very heart and nature of God. He is always true, and he is forever trustworthy. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. We are given a window into our condition as we looked at Genesis 3 and how we're prone to doubt you and to distrust you. And it makes us ashamed because you are worthy of our trust. You've proven yourself over again. Not not one word of yours has ever failed. Especially we see this in Jesus Christ. Your word made flesh, the one who lived, truly lived your truth. Did it mean hardship? Yes. Did it mean death? For Christ, it did. But it also secured us our life. What reason do we have not to submit ourselves to your way, to your word? Lord, cultural voices want us to go a different direction entirely. Would you guard us? Would you keep us? Would you protect us from falling into that trap? Keep us in your truth, we pray. For Christ's sake, amen.